Welcome to the show where we unearth new ways of looking at ever-evolving life around the world, seen from a number of different industries, cultures, and backgrounds. But there's one thing that unites everyone I speak to. They all want to do their part to make the world better in their own unique ways. It's a uniting passion. Whether they're from the commercial world, third sector, or public sector, from the global north or the global south, my name is Philippa White, and welcome to Thai Unearthed. Hello, and welcome to episode 43 of Thai Unearthed. Today, we have my longtime friend, John Alexander, with us, and he gives us a lot to think about in this episode. What does it mean to be a citizen? What are we doing to ourselves when we tell ourselves we're consumers over 3,000 times a day? How is the world changing? And what would the impact be on society if the private sector started to treat its people as citizens and not consumers? We cover off a lot. John is co-founder of the New Citizenship Project, a strategy and innovation consultancy that aims to shift the dominant story of the individual in society from consumer to citizen. They've worked with The Guardian, the European Central Bank, the BBC, Amnesty International, the National Trust, the British Film Institute, the Tate Galleries, amongst many others. And they're a certified B Corporation. Now, John started his career in advertising, and that's how we know each other, and is a proud former winner of Brand Republic's Big Idea of the Year Award for creating the concept of My Farm in 2011. The idea was to hand over decision-making on a real working farm to the public by online vote and debate as a way of engaging people with sustainable food production. John holds three master's degrees in disciplines spanning humanities and business and is very active politically and publicly, having presented at various events and forums, including TEDx. His May 10th, 2020 essay on Medium which analyzed the British government's response to COVID-19 through the lens of citizen versus consumer, went viral. And so far, 650,000 people have read it, probably more by the time this goes out. John will leave you with lots to think about. So throw on those running shoes or grab that favorite beverage, and here's John. John, it is absolutely wonderful to have you with us today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Tell me, for our listeners, where are you sitting right now? Where are you? I am sitting in my living room at home. Uh, I am looking out at grey skies, but but feeling very optimistic. So it's all good. That's good. And you're saying you're at home. Where are you? I know where you are because we went for a walk. But just for our for our listeners, where are you in the world? So I'm in the leafy surrounds of Seven Oaks in uh, in Kent, just outside of London. Oh, it was so nice that we met up. Just actually a month ago, I guess it was, and went for a wonderful walk in, what is it, Knoll? Knoll? Yeah, Knoll Park. Knoll it's, Park. Uh, it's, it's the joy of Seven Oaks. We moved out of town uh, six months or so before the pandemic. And basically, uh, if, if you designed an algorithm, it would be to, to maximise the number of trees for the minimum distance from the centre of London. It's, uh, it's pretty special. It is very so special. Feel, feel. Yeah, it was definitely a highlight for sure. Now, John... Tell our listeners a little bit about you. I'm so excited for this conversation. Uh, Obviously, the intro, I will have explained a little bit more about what we're going to be covering off today, but it's a fascinating area, something that you've obviously been involved with for a very long time. It speaks to your soul. Um, Before we get into all of that exciting stuff, 
bring you to life for our listeners? Tell us a little bit about you. So I, well, I started my career working in the advertising industry uh, for nearly a decade, which is where we first met, I think. It is. Many moons ago. And I guess I sort of fell into that industry, really, having my only previous dream had always been to be a, to be an Olympic athlete. And I sort of fell into the advertising industry, really wanting to, I guess, do something creative, something that would sort of contribute to the world in some way. Like, and, and, and it's interesting, I think, to note that like, it was a couple of years before I started my career that the, the Twin Towers came down, the World Trade Center came down. And, and, and there was that sort of that moment when the leaders of the free world uh, came out and said, right, citizens of the world kind of go shopping, really, like go and consume, go and contribute, go and show that we're not bowed. I think at a pretty deep level that had an impact on me. I, I think I went into the advertising industry really believing that I was doing doing the good work, as it were. And um, and yeah, from, from that moment on, I started pretty early on asking deeper and deeper questions about what the role of the advertising industry, what the role of what I've come to think of as the consumer story, the right thing to do, I think, uh, which is how I come to understand the consumer story, the right thing to do is to is to sort of look out for number one, get the best deal for yourself. I, I think there was something I kind of bought into at the beginning and then and then increasingly was asking questions as to what what is this all about? Does this really add up with all the things that I care most about and, and with the things that I believe about humanity and are, that I think are possible for us? And it was that journey of inquiry, the, the journey of asking questions that led me to this moment really of realization where I was going well what, what are we really doing to ourselves when we tell ourselves we're consumers 3,000 odd times a day when we when we're surrounded by that messaging all the time and what would it look like to put the creative energy that goes into that into something else and and that's that's really been the journey for me like a, a journey of asking questions and trying to find better questions trying to be someone who I want to be in the world. So before we get into you leaving advertising and and obviously the book and you know the new citizenship project and all this exciting stuff, you were a rower. Yeah, so I'm I'm still like a, a part of me. I consider myself an athlete still. I think it's sort of an ever more tenuous connection to that identity, that part of my identity. But. Um, but yeah, I used to row pretty seriously. I did did junior under twenty three international rowed at Cambridge. Like I was on a path, and I and I. What did I, you row? What did you rowing. row? Huh? What was your boat? Uh, so I rowed everything, eight single skulls, everything in between. Okay. Uh, so I I never quite made the blue boat, never quite made the boat race crew, but I was in the. I was in the Goldie crew for the, the Cambridge Reserve crew a couple of times. Wow. Um, I don't know if you do. I used to row as well for my province. I don't think we knew that about each other, but I just read your bio. And you were a rower and you rowed for Great Britain? That's amazing. I'm a good friend of mine and still someone who, I, who, who I'm talking to actually about how this citizen story shows up in elite sports was the Canadian Olympic rowing coach for oh. a good long time, a guy called Martin McElroy, who I should maybe introduce you to. Oh, well, my friend, she rode in the Olympics for Canada, won a bronze, I think, or silver. I can't remember. She was in the eight. So she would have, she would have been coached by him. So it was only the, it was actually two Olympics ago. So... Um, but yes, rowing, my brother was an, a, a big rower as well. He had to make the decision whether to go Olympic route or go to study. And he went to Cornell and ended up doing engineering. But 
yeah, very similar. Yeah. So, but it's interesting because obviously you're a triathlete as well, aren't you? Yeah, I am now. Yeah. That's, that was the change when I quit rowing in about 2007 and wasn't doing any sport seriously for about eight months. And then my partner was like, you need to find another sport. <laughs> uh, Actually. And I think it's interesting because you and Jane both train together, don't you? And I think Seven Oaks is such a, I mean, knowing that nature is such a huge part of you, obviously triathlons and just insane exercise. And you can do that on your doorstep, can't you? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it was a big part of the decision to move here. We're, we're quite odd. We actually, um, we, we took an Airbnb for a week in Seven Oaks before we, uh, to make the decision to move here in order to do a, a week trial membership of the triathlon club. So other, pe- other people make their decisions on slightly different bases <laughs> yeah. to us. I guess on a serious level, like it's my meditative practice. It's yeah. my, it's my, my reconnection and yeah. whether it's running, swimming, cycling, like all of it has that, has that kind of healing quality for me. Totally. Like the, the, or the, I mean, sometimes I joke that it's like, it's the only time my brain shuts up when I'm physically exhausted. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I hear you. And so it was also when you were at, in advertising that you did the sustainability degree. Yeah. So as I was starting to ask these questions about sort of what are we doing in the world? What's what, what's it all part of? What's the what's the bigger picture rather than just sort of the, the, the individual briefs I was working on? What, what There were some things that I had, I felt conflicted about in individual items of them, but there was also something bigger about sort of what they all added up to, what the broader story I was part of was. I went to do a part-time master's at Bath University uh, at the time was called the Master's in Responsibility and Business Practice. It was essentially built, uh, Anita Roddick was one of the founders of the course, and, and it was sort of somewhere between change agent training and two years of group therapy. And it was really about holding a space, and so many fascinating things have come out of that program that the Things like the Carbon Disclosure Project, which obviously now is very influential in the world of finance. Things like Forum for the Future, I know, has strong connections to that master's and, and an awful lot of the things there. The, the, an organisation called the Purpose Disruptors, which is directly um, working in the advertising and communications industry to sort of hold deeper questions about what's going on there. A lot of these organisations, and New Citizenship Project is one of them, were, were, were born out of the alumni of this master's by a leadership project, like all sorts of things. And yeah, so, so I went to do that and it really held a space for me to, a safe space, I think, to go further and deeper into these questions about the role of advertising, the role of the story of the consumer in society. And that, and that, that time, that sort of, which was end of the 2000s, was really quite difficult and dark for me because I felt like I was trapped in the negative side of this work, the kind of the analysis and the diagnosis of what I believe consumerism to be. And that took me some, like I say, some pretty dark places. There was a, a point where I actually was found myself still working in advertising, asking these questions, doing this research, and I found myself standing on Oxford Circus Tube Station Every evening for a week, like actually sort of physically retching, like at some like quite visceral physical level, I found my body kind of rejecting who I was and what I was doing and, the, and what I was and how I was understanding what I was doing. And it was the master's course that, that held the space for me to be able to do that is a weird language. But, but I think I needed and I think we where we are in our society today, we need some of that. We need some of that holding because I think we do have to ask, I think collectively as a, as societies, we, we need to be asking at the moment really deep, difficult questions about what it is we're doing and be able to hold each other in that process and find ways 
the other side of that, but that are genuinely commensurate to the scale of the challenges we face. I think I think we're we're in a moment in time where the the sort of nice everyone's a winner, like we don't have to change that much. It's just like adding another bottom line or whatever. The, 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 these sorts of solutions just don't don't cut it anymore. Talk to us about citizens. You know what does it mean to be a citizen? For me, I think there's two ways to think about citizenship. The first is the way that we're that we sort of more immediately think of it, which is which is as a as a sort of status. Like, what are you? Where are you a citizen of? Where is your passport from? Like. And, and the opposite of citizen in that context is, is a non-citizen, someone without the rights and, and opportunities and benefits that derive from, from having a passport or whatever. So what I'm talking about when I talk about citizenship is actually a, an idea of the individual in society, an idea of, of who we are and what we can and should do. And a story more than anything, a story about what it is to be human and what it is and what the right thing to do is. And, and for me, the idea of a citizen is someone who can and wants to shape the world that they're part of, the society that they're part of for the better, that, that who brings their creativity and energy and ideas and resources to bear on, on the world that they live in and, and who believes that they have, a, they have a right to do that and a responsibility to do that. And I think, so one of the ways I describe the story of the citizen is it's a story rooted in an understanding that all of us are smarter than any of us. It's when we tap into the ideas and energy and resources of everyone that we, are, we, that, that we will truly be able to find the best outcomes for society as a whole, because we will be drawing on that, that understanding. The more I've delved into this, the more I believe that actually humans are by nature citizens, that this is who we are. And secondly, that we are living in a moment in time where the technologies and the opportunities that exist in a way that arguably hasn't been possible on a, at a scale that reflects the scale of the societies we're living in. Actually, it is possible for us to be citizens. It is possible to create a citizen society. It is possible to tap into collective intelligence and, and to organise our societies through collective intelligence in a way that has never has not been possible ever certainly not since we lived in very different in a very different way since since hunting and gathering was was the was the norm so i it's a pretty deep set thing but but i, I think uh, i think when you see it through the lens through that kind of lens you go this is a remarkable time of opportunity it's interesting when you started to define citizenship i heard a lot of purpose and when you finished explaining it it was collectiveness and that that to, that's the difference isn't it because there's a bit of purpose in there as in realizing a potential of somebody which in your view is everybody is a citizen but actually it's that collectiveness isn't it i think i think that's true i think the way we talk about citizenship today we we often talk like i say we you you're a citizen of a place or whatever and there's some really fascinating like the etymology of the language is actually fascinating because we tend to think that because city is a shorter word than citizen, we sort of think that the, the, the word citizen must come from city. And so like we think of citizenship as geographically defined. What's like fascinating, actually, if you go back into the like the actual the words, the word city is actually a derivation from citizen rather than vice versa. And the word citizen lit, like directly comes from from language that literally translates as together people. Someone who is if you if you sort of push into yeah. that language, who is only meaningful in relationship to, to the others. others that they're with. And so there is a collectiveness that's inherent in the concept of citizenship at a very deep uh, level. 
linguistically as much as anything else. Yeah. But but I think what's in what's important to emphasize is that that is not a collectiveness that disappears the individual. I think the idea of citizenship is an idea of nested individuals. We are all unique, but it's when that uniqueness comes together that we are that we become more than the sum of our parts. Yeah. It's like a yeah. It's an idea of interdependence, yeah. not an idea of, of of the disappearance of the individual. Yeah. And I think that's really important to emphasize. That, that so is... often the rejection of consumerism is seen as a rejection of the individual. That's not what this is about. So, John, I feel like in order for us to move forward, I think we just need then for you to define what is the consumer story. Sometimes I think of the advertising industry in particular as, as almost the priesthood of consumerism as a religion. If you think about the, ins- the like religions calling adherents to prayer, the most insistent religions in the world call their adherents to prayer four or five times a day. Consumerism, the, the message that you are a consumer, the, the, the communications with the underlying message you are a consumer, the, the implicit message you are a consumer, we see, I mean, 3,000 times a day was the estimate back in 2003 when I started working in advertising. That was the estimate that was given to me then in framing my job. The, the, today, the estimates are anywhere between four and 10,000, depending on the, on the ethnographic research on the particular peer-reviewed study that you, that you look at. Daniel Kahneman won the Nobel Prize in 2008 or whatever for, for understanding low, like unconscious processing and, the, and system two thinking and all that stuff. This is the biggest nudge in the world. That level that I'm talking about, low involvement processing, as Robert Heath talked about in the advertising industry, it's like actually the underlying thing is this constant background conditioning that says you're a consumer and when and so to your question what's the consumer story i i like i say i tend to think in subject consumer citizen i i that holding them together i think is really powerful and so the subject story is one which says the right thing to do is to keep your head down and do as you're told on the basis that the god-given few knew, know best and therefore if we the little people keep our heads down do as we're told then the best society will result because those those god-given few will lead us there the consumer story replaced that i think or has replaced that over the last century and the consumer story says look out for number one get the best deal for yourself and again it's a it's an idea of how the best society results and and the consumer story is an argument that the best society will result when we aggregate the individual pursuit of self-interest to the whole. The like, individual self-interest adds up to collective self-interest. Milton Friedman basically said it in business language, right? Like the, the social responsibility of business to, is to maximize its profits. That is an expression of the, the, arguably the most direct expression of the consumer story. Yeah. I, I mean, it's Orwellian when you actually stop and think about it, yeah. right? Like it's yeah. selfishness is selflessness. Yeah. It's like, it's properly like doublespeak. But but that but that is the hypothesis I think. Okay. And so so when I talk about subject consumer citizen, I'm talking about those three stories. Yeah. I'm talking about a story that do as you keep your head down, do as you're told, because that's best. No. Okay. Pursue self interest because that will lead to the best. No. Okay. So what might we step into now as our kind of new hypothesis, as it were, of what of what will lead to the best outcome for society as a whole? And this is this is where this conversation gets interesting because. The traditional models of capitalism and socialism, they're old. Like they were created in a completely different time and the world has changed. Customs have changed. Social reality has changed. And this is obviously what you touch on a lot. And, you know, we won't have time to go into the the history of all of this. But when your book comes out on the 17th of March, everybody needs to get a copy of it because 
John does go into a lot. I mean, there's a chapter going through all of this in, in a lot of detail, and it's fascinating. You touched on it now. You know, there, there's, of course, an inertia from big groups, and we won't name them, but I think we all know many of them that want to maintain the status quo, you know, those old models. But there are, there are these rumblings, and there are these companies and these people and these movements out there that recognize that the world has changed, and the vision of the world has to be more just and human. Dynamics are taking us there. Employees are looking for it. Consumers are looking for it. If we're going to be talking about consuming, there is this sort of movement. And you know, you, you, there was the lovely quote from Leonard Cohen. You say, there is a crack, a crack in everything. And I just wonder, you know, and I said it, I said, you know, consumers are looking for it too. And this is, this is part of this conversation. I guess my question, and this is a, this is sort of a loaded question, isn't it? But like, what can this look like from a citizen point of view? What, what are we talking about? So where in your view do you see things going? And can you help our listeners kind of understand this new potential model? No, look, and I'll maybe pick off parts of that. I think the first thing I want to highlight is how important language is in this. I hear you using the word consumer and, and I, understand why you do and I understand how present it is in the world that you and and I work in and I want to just emphasize that it, it really does matter and there are so, social psychology studies peer-reviewed studies and we, which we've replicated at scale which 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 speak to this for example uh, there's one study where um you set a, a resource dilemma scenario you, you say to uh, you're one of four households dependent on a single well for your water supply and the well's starting to run dry. Uh, so you need to use less water. And then you ask people, to what extent do you trust the other three households to use less water and to what extent are you prepared to use less yourself? And then if you split the sample and you change the word household for the word consumer for half of the sample, you get significantly level, lower levels of trust and significantly lower levels of willingness to compromise when the word is consumer rather than household. So the, the moment that you use the word consumer, you are setting your brain on, and I'm not saying this to you. I, it's absolutely <laughs> fine. Right? Like, but when, when we use that word, we set ourselves on a train track where unconsciously we're limiting what we believe people are capable of. And when that is the, norm, that is the normal language in our organisations and even in our societies, we cannot help but limit what people are invited to do and what, what stake and what power people are invited to have because we implicitly conceive of them in, in a very deeply limited way. The second thing is, is about this idea of like capitalism and, so, and isms and big words. And I'm like, one of the things that over the sort of years of working with these ideas and pushing them and shaping them and challenging them and losing faith in them and regaining it is thinking about the society that results at the end of it. And I think the moment there was a moment for me where I was like, actually, I don't need to talk about capitalism or socialism. Or I don't like what I think is so empowering about this idea of a shift from consumer to citizen is you flip the telescope, basically, right? You, you're looking from the other end. You're not going like, how do we design? What does the ultimate world look like? You're going, what if we orient ourselves a little bit differently here from where we are? Let's just let's come in, turn a little bit and start acting. And, and what manifests as a result of that series of actions and thought processes may well be something different to capitalism. It may well be, or it might be citizen capitalism. That might still be a valid definition. I, I, I don't need to judge that. But what I do need to do is, is orient myself in my, in my life and in my organisation 
as a citizen rather than a consumer and encourage others to do so as well and trust and explore where that goes from there. The most exciting part of this work for me and part of the research for the book was looking at and interviewing my new hero, the, the digital minister of Taiwan, uh, Audrey Tang, the world's first transgender minister, uh, who is an awesome person. Dropped out of school at the age of 13, went to live with a matriarchal indigenous tribe in eastern Taiwan, transitioned, became a software programmer, worked for Apple and Google, and then and then basically set up a hacker movement called GovZero, or became part of a hacker movement called GovZero, which was a response to an increasingly authoritarian set of tendencies from the Taiwanese government only as long, not no longer ago than 2012. And what GovZero, the reason they were called GovZero is because they created shadow versions of government websites with the URLs g0v.tw instead of .gov.tw. And they invited people into these processes of essentially sort of understanding what participatory democracy might look like just outside of government. Come 2014, the government tried to rush through a trade deal with China and there was an Occupy-style protest. And GovZero brought in a broadband connection and started streaming what the protesters were doing. And the protesters were in the parliament, occupying the parliament, debating the clauses of the trade bill. And the Speaker of the Parliament in that moment, and this is this was actually the critical moment, and maybe we'll come back to this in sort of what this means for leaders of organisation, but the Speaker of the Parliament said, this is democracy. He said, this is what this space is for. Wow. And he refused to boot them out, despite being a member of the governing party, in the same way as our Speaker is a member of a party, but sets aside their membership in the UK. And since then, like so much is completely different. Like the that almost all of the political representation changed in the following series of elections. Audrey went from being a hacker to being outside of government, to being a mentor to a minister, to now being a minister. Taiwan now runs a presidential hackathon every year focused on the sustainable development goals where they gather ideas from everywhere and try and do... They, they responded to COVID with a national team effort that in, included a, a telephone line that any citizen could ring into with an idea for how the country's response could be better with a voicemail recorded by the president herself. I mean, it's just unbelievably transformative and an incredibly short scale of time, yeah. time scale. And that is part of the reason why I find that such an inspiring story, because I think what it speaks to is this is who we are. My first belief about humanity is that, that we are by nature citizens. My second belief is that we are by nature, storytelling and story-dwelling creatures. And we are currently trapped in what I call the consumer story. But if we can give ourselves the space from that, it's not that we have to learn how to be citizens, that it's going to be some sort of gradual generational process. We just have to get the, out of the way, right? Like, and, and, and open the spaces and God, trust in each other. You know what? So just in your book, and you talk a lot about the importance of flexibility, communication, listening, empathy, I talk a lot about about that with Ty and how those are the competencies that we need for today's world to be able to move forward. Everything you've just talked about with the Taiwanese example is all of that. It's listening, it's empathy, it's understanding, it's openness, it's embracing. And that's what citizenship is, right? It's understanding Amen. the right. other person. It's understanding. Exactly. It's, it's coming together. It's being there for the other person and it's understanding how I can impact you 
or you can impact me. It is, and, and I would go one step further and say it's about creating space for the other. It's not doing things for people or, or just empathy in the sense of understanding what yours must be like and trying to help. It's about cultivating agency. That, that is a, it, what I've always admired about what you're doing and, and celebrated about what you're doing. I think it's creating space for people to become a different type of leader. Whether you're doing, that's the individual experiences or whether that's sort of your, the, the whole presence of tie in an organization. I, I think it's this space for understanding that when you create space for people, people want to step into that and, and it's an idea of leadership that is neither about command and control but nor is it actually about service servant leadership it's about facilitative leadership it's about we are more together than we would be apart it's not about people coming into these projects in, in other countries and with miracle solutions from yeah. the wisdom of on it's, high it's about people getting down exactly. and going right okay what have you got what can i offer and how can that Come multiply together. and that is the beauty of it so john what i really want to understand and i think this is the crux of this conversation because in the book you provide lots of examples of ngos involved in the citizenship conversation the kicker and the future of this planet and your thinking which is hopefully going to contribute to it, is how we can engage the private sector in this way of thinking. Because the private sector until now, I still remember in my business class with us, you know, being forced to pre... What's the main goal of business? To make money! Which made me feel physically Serious. ill. Serious. I would really like to understand, knowing... You know, we are talking about shared value, we're talking about purpose, we're talking about the ESGs, we're talking about all these things. Talk to us about how the private sector can engage in this and what does this look like? I appreciate the challenge. I slightly defend myself against some of the, <laughs> of, of your characterization, actually, because the chapter on business in the book is just as long as the chapter on NGOs. And actually, I think the consumer mentality has showed up in the NGO, has co-opted the NGO uh, world, the charity world, arguably even more than the business world in a lot of ways. Like the idea that people are either donor, donors or beneficiaries, the idea that people sort of get get benefits for joining a charity or whatever like I, I know that that's not where we're going but i did just want to make no. that point that like the consumer story has showed up and and co-opted that world just as much as any other and has co-opted government as well yeah true but the to, to really zoom in on business which i think is the is the sort of real nub of the of the question and and of this of the opportunity with this audience. I think what I would say is that it's the same. Businesses will thrive if they tap into the ideas and energy and resources of everyone, whether that's their employees or their customers, than if they don't. You're looking at the most underutilized resource base that you could possibly imagine. I mean, to take a couple of examples, and I think it does apply both to employees and beyond and to, and to other stakeholder groups as well. I think you can apply it everywhere. What if we think of our employees as, as citizens of our organisation with the idea who want, who can and want to contribute their ideas, energy and resources to shaping this organisation for the better, rather than seeing them as consumers of jobs? If you get in and if you go to that mindset, then you get then so many things open up. I mean, take, take, I, I think employee activism is a, becomes completely reframed, for example. So take, at the moment, there's this thing about McKinsey's, uh, 11 employees sending a letter saying we, we need to think about our role in relation to fossil fuel companies. That's now been signed by 2000 uh, of, of McKinsey's consultants or something and is causing disruption and is being managed as if those people like 
the good ones are being offered salary, like increases in salary, and in, in, in order to keep them quiet, and the and the and the shittier ones who are really upset about it are just being allowed to leave, and that's a consumer response from the organisation, right? If that organisation went, what what really are we here for? And this is where purpose, as you've hinted, does come in. If we're really here to help the organisations, the most influential organisations in society, to perform better, then which I, I mean, that's my approximation. I'm guessing. Like, who knows if they actually have a purpose statement? I don't really care, frankly. But but if that if if I impose if I project that purpose onto McKinsey, then I go. There's some wisdom here, right? There's some smart people. How do I hold the space for them to, to bring them together? And not just like, not just assume that, 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 that it's necessarily about kicking all those clients out the door, but I actually bring together a conversation that goes, okay, how do we want to engage in this? Like if we are in a moment of fundamental change where the world has to get beyond fossil fuels, how do we as an organization, as a collective with, with different perspectives and ideas and intelligences, understand what role we might play in that and i bet they would get to something way smarter than they're currently doing and would find some tools and ways of working that would make them invaluable advisors to those to, to organizations of all shapes and sizes so that's a, that's like a that's just a, really just nice. like a thought experiment of that similarly with but then the customer side of things as well and this is something i i talk about a lot in the book like with examples from Brewdog and Tortoise yeah, Media Brewdog. and, Brewdog is a and, great and, and, and Technology Will Save yeah, Us and yeah, Yup yeah. and like so many really fascinating organisations yeah. that are going, hang on a minute, yeah. like we're, we're channeling, we're tapping into one kind of value that people can contribute, financial, like one, a, a minimal transactional relationship. And just to, just to illustrate that the power of this and to and all, actually to go back to the, to the NGO challenge that you gave, I think probably the most, the single most commercially impactful case study that New Citizenship has ever had has been its involvement with the National Trust. Oh, I was hoping you were going to bring up the National Trust. I love this example. Yes. But, but you're like, so, so this, this is, I mean, yes, it's an NGO, technically. Oh, uh, not technically. It's got a, it's, it is a charity. But it, it's a half billion turnover organization, right? This is a beast. And yet this organization, and in the work we were doing with them, you basically were standing at a point where if they treated people as consumers of days out, the value that they were harnessing from that group was was minimal like uh, i mean it was it was it was decent and and it kept them going and it was in a pattern but ultimately you're you're feeding a beast and you're creating expectations and da, 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 da. if you when you switch that relationship to say what if we saw those people as participants in the purpose of this organization what if we see people not as consumers of days out but as people who really care about special places people who who understand the need for beauty in the world and want to champion that alongside us, not just be served by us with gloss finished days out. Then you get to a place where you start tapping into their, like I said, I mean, I keep using this phrase, ideas, energy and resources, but you go like, how can we show the work of conservation, not hide it behind closed doors? How can we give people opportunities to kind of micro volunteer in that? How can we, and, and when you do those sorts of things, my favourite example of our work was moving from a campaign that was going to be called Get Outdoors with the National Trust and try and sell outdoor days out to consumers 
to a campaign that was called 50 Things to Do Before 11 and 3 Quarters that was about connecting children and nature by crowdsourcing lists of the things that, of the experiences every young person should have. That campaign alone was, has been infinitely the most successful marketing campaign in the National Trust's history by any commercial or other measure. When you make that shift in, in relationship, you go way beyond the transaction and into something that builds loyalty and emotional connection and, and this right and then and then you're going this isn't this is an infinitely more valuable relationship and then this is why brood i mean brewdog has had some travails in recent years it's a uk brewery they um start, started up only in about 2007 it's been one of the fastest growing companies in the uk and and now worldwide uh, over recent years and effectively invented equity crowdfunding, among other things, before any of the platforms that now exist existed. They sold the stake in the company to their customers. They, they talk about being on a mission to make everyone as passionate about craft beer as we are. They open source their recipes, sell brew at home kits, the sorts of things that you would never do if you were trying to maximize transactional sales of beer. But if you're trying to involve people in a movement around craft beer you you come to a different set of ideas so there's obviously like you say there's way more you could talk about but but i think that the critical flip is this notion of going what if we see people whether it's employees or customers as participants in what we're doing not just consumers of our products i want to talk about unilever briefly because this is a really profound experience in my life and i think they're in real in difficult times at the moment with pressure from shareholders and sort of old school shareholder language coming back and what i would be encouraging them to do is to really lean into it to really go no double down we're going to like They've talked about purpose, but they've never gone further into like, let's create a different relationship with our customers. And if they did that, they would really unlock the financial value that purpose makes possible. One of the things I say in the book is like purpose for business is a ne is necessary, but not sufficient. You need a purpose in order to be able to unlock participation, but a purpose only allows that value to be created. It doesn't create it directly. Well, we're coming to the end of the podcast, but I just wanted to ask you, is there anything else that you'd like to say that I haven't asked you? The place I try to end the book is, I know you've talked to some really fascinating people. You've you talked to leaders in many different organizations and spaces. And, and I guess it leaves me wanting to say two things. And I, and I also know that much of your audience is, is in the advertising industry. And I guess I've been pretty down on that space. I guess I'm, um, I guess where I, what I'd want to leave with is two things, really. The first is that I think there is good work to be done from those places. And I think, but I think the idea of marketing needs to change, but just as much as anywhere, it needs to start with an idea of people as citizens, not consumers. And if you do that, I think advertising itself changes. It might not be marketing anymore. It might be foruming, right? Like it's, it's like, I don't know, like what's the language that we use if, if we're inviting people into their agency and into the space? I think that it's not a simplistic like advertising is evil story. It go, it's, gone, it's gone deeper and through that and out the other side to go like, actually, this is a... This is a societal scale story that we have to work on from everywhere. But I do think that advertising has to face into it because advertising is more directly guilty of perpetuate, of perpetrating and perpetuating this story than any other industry. And so, so while there is good work to be done from within it, there is seriously direct and much deeper negative impact than almost any other industry, I believe, at the moment. And the second thing I want to I'd want to leave you with is what it means to be a leader in this moment in time and what it means to lead. And I, where I end the book is this idea of being an anti-hero. Like, oh, I love, yes, and I didn't, that was one thing I did actually want to talk about and I didn't touch on it. I love that. 
thought? I actually think to your thing, like there are lots of people and organizations wanting to face into this moment in time. And yet I think the barrier is this, the deepest psychological barrier, I think, and therefore the deepest barrier is actually this idea that we have to know. We have to know the answer. We have that if you're a CEO, that you have to be the hero, you have to have all the answers. And and actually that the perceived need actually stops people from being able to ask the questions in the first place and therefore makes them put their fingers in their ears and pretend that this stuff isn't happening. And so when I talk about being an anti-hero, I think it's about I think it's about saying, look, I mean, look, I'm a, I, I say in the book, like I'm I'm about to turn 40, I'm white, six foot, I pass in this world. But the role that I need to play is not one of bit of having the answers. It's one of going, let's open the doors, guys. I have this thing that, I, that I've been challenging myself to do as much as I can of like, yes, go into these spaces and places and institutions and establishments, but then, but then open the door and bring others in and go like, look at what we could do rather than going and and because people are looking to me and I'm really conscious of holding this as I put this book into the world that I do believe has some useful answers, not making myself be the carrier of answers, but practicing what I preach and trying to go, no, let's let's open this up. We need more wisdoms in this space. Yeah, I think I think that idea of leader as anti-hero is one that I would like to leave this on just as I left the book on. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I love our conversations. John, thank you for your time. You've left a lot of people with a lot to think about. I have mentioned it a couple of times throughout this podcast, but you can read more and I do highly recommend it. It's a really great read and just leaves all of us with sort of lots to reflect on and consider as we collectively move forward with a lot of these challenges that we're all facing and and together we are definitely stronger. Thank you for your thoughts and your passion and your hard work. And I'm just excited to follow the journey once this this gets out there. And obviously I think people can um can order a sort of a, a copy even though it hasn't been launched yet. So yeah, pre orders are live um, Cambry Press and uh which is my publisher but also all all outlets you can you can pre order if you want. I'm trying to get all over the country so if you or and into organizations if you'd like me to come talk I'm the default answer will be yes thank you for having me and thank How you for How can your people reach well. you cuz all on the um on the blurb uh I will put a link should just LinkedIn I guess No the probably the best website is is my uh is the site for the book which is just johnalexander.net John it's been a pleasure as always thank you I look forward to our next walk in the Knoll Yeah the Knoll uh, Knoll Park um, but until then, be well. Stay Lots well. of love, dude. And uh, yeah, hope you, hope, you, hope you feel better. Yeah, thank you. Yes. Ah. Talk to you soon. Bye. Hey, everyone. This is Philippa again. I hope you enjoyed listening. Now, this is your chance to get involved with Thai. If you work in the commercial world, whatever your profession, your position, or your experience, then Thai could be for you. You may have been in business for decades, but have always felt there's another way. Or you may just have a few years experience but want to do more. Equally, if you want to create game-changing employees and see your company impact the world, we've got you covered. Thai has never been more necessary than right now, and you can be a part of it. Reach out to me at philippa at theinternationalexchange.co.uk and I can tell you more. Or join the Thai Accelerator info session for more information. Apply.thaiaccelerator.com better leaders, better companies, better world. I'm your host, Philippa White. This podcast has been co-produced by Berna Vieira and me, music by Berna Vieira, and artwork by Kelps Fahais. 
I hope we'll meet again soon.